You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up and welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, everything in the store is only a dollar. Oh, and 25 cents too. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? The Dollar Tree made the controversial decision to raise their famous prices, but will the decision be a profitable one, or could it threaten the integrity of the business itself? Yeah, I got one of those at the dollar and a quarter store. Yeah, it just doesn't do it for me. Not bad. A rare disease left Doug Lindsay bedridden, but it didn't leave him hopeless. The miraculous story of the man who invented a surgery to save his own life. Humans attach value to things in a number of different ways, but one of the most powerful ways we do this is by inflating the value of things we feel like we have some sort of ownership over. How has the endowment effect shaped the world we live in today? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, I'll be honest, I always get Dollar General and the Dollar Store confused, and they're actually pretty different. Yeah, they are. I think uh, Dollar Tree is the one that commits to the $1 price, whereas Dollar General, it's a little bit more flexible. They're just kind of like, hey, some stuff's a dollar. When I think of Dollar Tree, I think about something that it kind of infuriates me about you, and that's that around <laughs> Christmas time every year... You've sort of established this tradition uh, because back in the day, you were about to go to your family Christmas party. You put off buying gifts. So you went to Dollar Tree and you bought about 15 nonsensical items for $15. And they were sort of all jokes. Like you bought like a dust pan and, you know, like a thing of bubble wrap or something. Now it's your thing. And so you get away with spending like $12 on Christmas. True or false? Well, see, that's, that's where you're only half right. So first of all, it was not a, I forgot until the last minute. That was the intention all the way. But when I did it, and I only did this for three years, I do not do this anymore. It brought a lot of joy, really. We have pictures up on our family's wall at multiple houses of people opening these gifts, just really having fun. So it was, it was perfect for a few years, and then I cut it off. I got out before it got unfunny. That's the key to something like yeah, that. you got to get out before it gets old. That's convenient. You know, Everybody was enjoying it, but who was enjoying it the most? You were, because your wallet well, was mean, real it, heavy. I'm telling you, you weren't there. <laughs> in my defense, it really was a hit. Well, in 1986, a new chain of stores called Only One Dollar were opened to compete with a store called Everything's a Dollar that very literally sold everything in their store for a dollar. And the founders of Only One Dollar saw the idea and believed that they could just do it better. And after a lawsuit sort of sorted it all out, Only One Dollar had to change its name to the Dollar Tree, and the Dollar Tree was born, beginning a 35-year run of success. Dollar Tree, which is stocked with everything from party supplies to books to food to household items, has pretty much run on this model ever since. Uh, Macron Brock, a Dollar Tree founder in his autobiography, One Buck at a Time, says... I viewed the dollar-only concept as sacred. It was everything. Without it, we'd just be another discount retailer. 
But as inflation has steadily risen since the founding of the Dollar Tree, it's almost as if an anvil has been strung up above the head of the company that gets heavier every year. In 1986, Dave, the value of a dollar is about the value of $2.50 today. And so in August of 2021, Dollar Tree Chief Executive Michael Witniski pretty firmly said that the company remained committed to the dollar price. But by December, the company had reversed course, announcing that the commitment to a dollar would be replaced with a commitment to a price of $1.25 on the vast majority of the items in the stores. And while it doesn't really seem like a lot, it's still a 25% price increase, first of all, but also it sort of challenges really the core identity of the company itself. How will loyal customers respond to this? Will they see it as a betrayal? Uh, will Dollar General, Dollar Tree's main competitor, jump in and undercut by doubling down on the dollar price? Now, Dollar Tree is actually on their third CEO in six years, and many market researchers agree that the move is quite risky and could alienate 35 years of branding and customer loyalty. You know, Dollar Tree has tried to set itself apart from Dollar General in many small ways. For example, while Dollar General tends to be the place where we go when we run out of an item and need it quick, Dollar Tree tends to fill its 8,000 stores with quirky items or decorative pieces. Everything marketed as a dollar took out the legwork of employees having to constantly change prices on the sales floor and made it much easier on shoppers to keep track of how much the contents of their carts was going to cost at the register. But Dollar Tree has painted itself into a corner here as the cost of labor, fuel, transportation, advertising, and shipping has risen pretty significantly in 35 years. As you would expect, this decision to raise prices comes in response to a steady fall in profit margins. Now, Dollar Tree has reported that they've gotten mostly positive feedback from customers shopping at stores that have tested new prices and have conducted independent surveys with shoppers, 91% of whom report that they would still shop at Dollar Tree with the same or increased frequency, even with the price hike. Now, the criticism leveled at Dollar Tree here, though, is mainly centered on the idea that while the company probably did need to raise its prices, the company did it very suddenly and without any buildup. Now, while Dollar Tree has run some tests with a section of the store called Dollar Tree Plus, which sells higher priced items, these tests were only run for a couple of months before announcing that sweeping price hike. Dollar General, which sells about 20% of its products for a dollar, has already responded to the Dollar Tree price hike by doubling down and committing to sticking to that, which is an attempt to undercut their competitor. Only time will tell how consumers respond as we exit the holiday season, where business is pretty much always going to be inflated. Dollar Tree stock, for what it's worth, took a pretty major hit with the announcement uh, when it was made, but it has rebounded very steadily and is currently trading higher than it has in five years. And Dollar Tree emphasizes that the move was made to allow the stores to sell a wider variety of products. So will this move be worth it? Well, you know, Dave, only time will tell, but I think it's safe to say that you're going to be shelling out about 25% more money for those quirky Christmas gifts in the years to come, and this Christmas might have finally caught up to you. Once again, I haven't done that in years. You can believe that lie as long as you want to. Now, I'm a marketer by trade, so you have to be really careful when these things happen, like this kind of price increase. There's another company that's known for cheap prices, Jay, that also just announced 
that it will also raise prices for the first time in 25 years. Little Caesars, the discount pizza, is upping the $5 hot and ready 11% to $5.55. Okay, but here's the trade-off. Little Caesars is putting 33% more pepperoni now on the hot and ready to offset the prices. Oh, this ma- so this math is more? like hurting my head. Like you how? get a little <laughs> bit more pizza, you get a little bit more pepperoni. We're living in the darkest timeline. Like no price is sacred anymore. They're they're hitting the five dollar hot and ready. They're hitting baby. the Dollar Tree. Like when will it end? Jay, you and I are wired very different. That's one reason that we have such a beautiful friendship and why I think that we have a great back and forth on things like this podcast. But with that said, I really have no idea how you're going to answer this question. How do you, Jay Sisson, handle disappointment? Uh, so it's usually like a very strong reaction out the gate for a short time. And then I get over it like pretty suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jay, I think it's, it's safe to say that nobody, you or I, likes disappointment. But the really sweet spot in life comes from learning how to deal with that disappointment in a healthy way. Setbacks are going to come. Things are going to go wrong. It's inevitable. It's just part of life. And as proof of how I myself am on a journey with this, when I was in therapy, something I recommend for everybody, by the way, my therapist would constantly come back to the Pixar movie Inside Out. If you are unfamiliar with Inside Out, a snapshot synopsis is that the film focuses on our five core emotions. The ultimate message is that we need all of them. Joy cannot exist without sadness and so on for us to function as healthy human beings. So setbacks, a.k.a. sadness, will affect all of us, but it's those setbacks, those disappointments, that have the power to propel us to do truly remarkable things. So, Jay, we journey now back in time to 1999 to meet a man who faced a great disappointment, a man named Doug Lindsay. Lindsay faced a setback that most of us will only encounter in our worst nightmares. Doug Lindsay, then a senior in college in 1999, collapsed at home one evening after class, suddenly stricken with the same mysterious disease that had haunted multiple members of his family, a disease that would baffle doctors from around the country until it was ultimately solved by Lindsay himself. So, Jay, this medical condition, once again, had already played a part in Lindsay's life. Doug Lindsay's mother had suffered from the same unknown disease since his birth. And by the time he was just four years old, she found herself so weak she was unable to walk. And if that's not enough, her sister, Lindsay's aunt, soon developed the same condition. So it's safe to say that mysterious illness had unfortunately already been a very prominent part of Lindsay's life. Lindsay's symptoms would quickly follow suit, the pain becoming so intense that he could only walk about 50 feet at a time before he'd collapse from exhaustion. Doctors were baffled, exactly as they were with his mother and aunt, and soon even the most creative treatment options stopped working to alleviate his pain. Out of options and unable to finish college, Lindsay decided to dedicate his life a life that was confined to a bed for nearly 22 hours a day looking for answers. He immersed himself in medical research and met with any specialist that would see him. Endocrinologists, neurologists, internal medicine experts, anyone and everyone. 
After years of this, exhausted and frustrated with worsening conditions, Lindsay decided to consult an out-of-date medical textbook on endocrinology that he found in a dumpster while he was in college that he had used to research his mom's condition. You can't make this stuff up. And Jay, using that textbook, along with other old and discarded textbooks that he found along the way, Lindsay eventually zeroed in on a promising lead, his adrenal glands, theorizing that perhaps a tumor could have developed on the glands and that could be behind this mysterious illness. Lindsay would spend the next several years trying to convince medical experts from around the country to help him in his quest for answers. And after many difficult years of speeches, presentations, pleas, and disappointment, Dr. H. Cecil Coughlin, a medical professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, offered his partnership to Lindsay in 2006, seven years after the first symptom. So Jay, after a few years of grueling tests with Dr. Coughlin, the pair experienced a breakthrough and an official diagnosis was finally determined bilateral adrenal medullary hyperplasia, (laughs) or in layman's terms, the inner regions of his adrenal glands were enlarged and acting like tumors. Basically, his adrenal glands were producing way too much adrenaline. That discovery led to surgery after surgery after surgery. And after all those surgeries were completed, and after a nine medication per day regimen was developed, Doug Lindsay now has his life back. Dr. Coughlin, a guy that has truly earned the title of hero in my book, passed away in 2015, but he did live long enough to witness Lindsay complete his miraculous recovery. And while he never achieved his dreams of being a biology professor, Lindsay now serves as a medical consultant, helping doctors try to make the impossible possible. I couldn't be an assistant manager at Trader Joe's. I don't have the physical ability for that, Lindsay told CNN. But I can travel and give speeches and go for walks, and I can try to change the world. I got help from people, and now I have to help people in return. You know, you and I both love the uh, ABC program Lost. There's a pretty famous line in Lost where John Locke yells, Don't tell me what I can't do! And uh, this is like the ultimate don't tell me what I can't do. I feel like I can do anything after listening to that story. We have to go back! (laughs) So Dave, in this last segment to take us home, we're going to talk about uh, the psychological phenomenon known as the endowment effect, which I know that you uh, have a great deal of background in. So Yeah, so I'm pumped that you're doing this segment. I'm a big fan of a guy named Daniel Kahneman, and if you haven't read it or if this kind of thing interests you, he wrote a great book. He's written a couple really great books, but a, a fantastic book called Thinking Fast and Slow. And in that book, and in really anything that Daniel Kahneman has written, he talks about things like the endowment effect. And, and so, Jay, and you'll tell us all about this, but really, we think we understand our motivations. But as you will prove in this segment, we really don't. Right. And so if you don't really know what we're talking about, the endowment effect deals with how we value items, but specifically how we value items that we own or feel like we have ownership over. And it's in our nature to inherently overvalue things that we own. And this bias has 
pretty far-reaching effects on society. And the term endowment effect was officially coined by Richard Thaler, who's a partner of Kahneman that you mentioned at the top. And in the years since, it has been studied by psychologists over the course of hundreds of studies. In the most famous of these studies, participants were split into three groups. One group was given a coffee mug for a while and then given the option to trade it for a chocolate bar. The second group was given the chocolate bar initially for a time and then given the option to trade it in for the coffee mug. And then the control group was simply asked to choose between a coffee mug and a chocolate bar. The control group was pretty evenly split, as you'd expect. 44% chose the chocolate bar and 56% chose the coffee mug. But the experimental groups looked much different. In the group who received the mug, 89% chose to keep it over the chocolate bar. And on the reverse, 90% of the participants in the group who received the chocolate bar chose to keep it in lieu of the coffee mug. So the results here have been confirmed over and over with similar studies that all sort of tell us that same thing. We are predisposed to items that we feel like we have some sort of ownership over. And this conclusion can be generalized to explain why investors will hold on to stocks that lose value or why the Vietnam War was dragged on for years and why it has scientifically been proven that bidders will pay much more in a chaotic and frenzied eBay auction. The value on an item rises the more like we feel like the item is ours. Studies have even shown that our primate cousins are subject to these biases too. Uh, In a famous 2008 study involving monkeys, researchers emulated the study with food desirable to the monkeys and gave them the opportunity to trade for even more treats. And like the humans, the vast majority of the monkeys chose to stick with their original endowment. So businesses consider this when they aim to sell you a product, i.e. free trial periods. Uh, In her 2017 article for Medium, Fiona So points out that specifically apps today are explicitly designed to give you a sense of ownership over the product. And since 35% of all mobile app engagements last for less than one minute, Being able to access the power behind our cognitive biases, it can really be the difference that sets one app apart from another. So apps will do this successfully by using conditional rewards that we risk losing if we don't return to the app. Apps or products that set some sort of goal to achieve is also rooted in this. For example, think the coffee loyalty card that you have to get punched 10 times before you can earn a free one. We hear in marketing and business language of building loyalty to the brand, but at its core, this is where that comes from. You're not convincing customers to be loyal as much as you're convincing consumers to perceive some sort of ownership over the product. This can also be seen in the way people try to sell their own personal items. For example, like a used car or a used piece of furniture for a little too much. Ultimately, humans are pretty overall bad at assessing risk and determining the opportunity cost of something. We tend to focus too much on the potential pain of losing something than we do the potential gain of selling it. So if we know this, how can we avoid falling into this trap in our own lives? Well, one practical way, Dave, is to recognize that it exists in you and be aware that the economy that we live in recognizes this and then aims to use it. Sales tactics aim to make you bond with a product. And when this happens to you, you have to ground yourself in the reality that a brief interaction with some product doesn't necessarily make it more valuable. And when selling something, you should always focus on the market value when setting your prices, especially if you're selling a product that you created or one that you believe in. The endowment effect can tend to price us out of markets if we attribute too much value to a good 
based on our ownership of it. Yeah, Jay, and a perfect example of this actually is an entry into the Journal of Economic Perspectives that was co-authored by a couple of economists, and two of them were Daniel Kahneman and Richard Thaler. In that entry, they say the following. A wine-loving economist that we know purchased some nice wines a few years ago at low prices. The wines have greatly appreciated in value, so a bottle that cost only $10 when purchased would now fetch $200 at auction. The economist now drinks some of his wine occasionally, but would neither be willing to sell the wine at the auction price nor buy an additional bottle at that price. And Jay, that's what you're saying. That is the endowment effect. People often demand much more to give up an object than they would ever be willing to pay to acquire it. Yeah, this reminds me of a posting I just saw on Facebook Marketplace a couple days ago. This guy had posted a coffin for sale. It was in his (laughs) kitchen, which was really weird. It was open. It was in his house. Never know when you're going to need it to be he was selling it for like a thousand dollars but he said he had bought it which he kind of buried the lead and he said he had bought it for like 1100 or something like that and everybody was just like (laughs) torching him in the comments like it's in your kitchen what are you doing was he storing chips in it i mean was he using it as as some kind of it was right beside the fridge and he had uh, he had tilted it up and opened it like a fridge so i first at first glance thought it was a fridge but it was a coffin i feel like that you told me one time that you put on Facebook Marketplace that you had tickets to the premiere of a movie and for some reason I think it was Twilight and people went crazy trying to buy them from you but you did this as a joke and put oh, somebody else's yes, phone Oh yes I did do on. that it was Craigslist it was like back when Craigslist was a thing I put one of my friend's numbers on a Craigslist posting and said like hey I have two tickets to the premiere of Twilight tonight and it was when Twilight was like massively crazy and uh, call me and you can have them first come first serve and yeah I did feel really bad because I think he had to change his number like he got blown <laughs> to the moon by phone calls for days that's funny but you are a bad person And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.